If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 744. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Once you're on that email list, of course, you're going to get great coupons. You're going to get my my weekly or daily emails. Depends on how much I send them. Usually not too excessive. Uh, so don't unsubscribe from that. You are going to start getting some stuff to go and get on McClanahan Academy. Purchase some books. Purchase some gear. You're going to get those things. Um, and look, there's those are autoresponders. Okay? So you're going to get some of that stuff. But you are going to get fresh email content from me all the time. And you're going to want that, right? They're infotainment. So please do not unsubscribe from those lists because you do get great deals at McClanahan Academy, which is a great way to support the show. I mentioned yesterday that that 30% off is expired November 30th. I'm extending it out just a couple of days. Okay, so you're going to want to get that 30% off right now. It's the lowest you're ever going to see it. You want it. You're going to want the 30% off because I don't offer this very often at all. So go ahead and pick up those classes if you can. They make great gifts. What also make great gifts is Brian McClanahan Show gear. So click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Purchase one or ten of my books. Those make great gifts for that Brian McClanahan Show fan in your life. You can also support the show financially by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can go to anchor.fm. You can subscribe there. Or you click on the little heart button on the video little super thanks button. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. As always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review on Apple Podcasts. That's a great way to let people know how much you like it. Comment on YouTube. It helps the algorithm. Watch as much of the video as possible. That helps the algorithm. Do all those things to get people with eyeballs and ears on this podcast because they need it. Now, we had an interesting day yesterday talking about the Virginia monuments, the Richmond Uh, issue with the Confederate monuments. And of course, I say interesting because it all comes down to a local court, right? The state Supreme Court arguing against those who want to keep the monuments up. And I made the case on Tuesday that part of the problem with America is an oppressive federal court system. Well, uh, I mean, you can say there's problems in the in the state courts as well if they don't actually follow the law, which we know they're not doing. That's part of the problem. But it all comes down to a myth of America. All of this. It doesn't matter if we're talking about Ron DeSantis on Monday, Jamel Bowie and the Anti-Federalists on Tuesday, or Confederate Monuments on Wednesday. It comes down to a myth of America that is centered on Abraham Lincoln, the Lincolnian myth of America. Now, how does this all work together? So I'm going to wrap up this week talking about this. There's a piece at Law and Liberty. It's a short piece, but I want to focus on it. So Ron DeSantis, as I said on Monday, is a Hamiltonian. A Hamiltonian in Washington, D.C. is a bad thing. 
I mean, I, I could talk about national conservatism for weeks. It's one of the main things I rail on, rail against in this podcast is national conservatism. It's just as dangerous as national progressivism because it's both national. And you've got such razor-thin majorities in America now that it's going to be very hard to make any of this work anymore. What I said about Tuesday with Bowie I found fascinating that he's actually arguing against an overpowerful Supreme Court or federal court system because he thinks that can lead to abuse. Well, it will. It does. Now, what Bowie might be realizing is that in some state courts, they might have a better way forward than the federal courts right now. And this is the way that conservatives have thought about it for years. But all that comes down to this Lincolnian myth. The Lincolnian myth of the proposition nation. And so uh, that is undergirding all of this, right? The Confederate monuments. They have to come down because it's against the Lincolnian myth of the proposition nation. That all men are created equal. All these things that I've talked about on this podcast for years. You see, the education system is producing all of this stuff. It's producing people to look to the center. It's producing people to want Ron DeSantis to come in and save the day as president and just start signing executive orders and doing all this stuff and getting the Wokies, getting the leftists. It's doing all that, right? What's going to happen when he's not president? you got the lefty that comes in there, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and she starts signing executive orders to get all the right-wingers, right? I mean, what happens here? We know this happens. We're more than likely to get leftist fascism than anything else in America. Bowie understands the courts. They've lost the courts for the time being, so they might as well go ahead and restrict the power of the courts. And then, of course, when they get power again, they can they can do undo all of that. They know that. Or at the very least, they can look at Virginia and say, wow, look at Virginia. Look at what this court system has done in Virginia. It's going our way. Or we've had state courts in other places that are going their way, even red states where the state courts have kind of gone the way of the left. So they're not necessarily afraid of the courts. They just don't like the current ideological bent of the Supreme Court. And it is very powerful. But again, all this comes down to Lincoln myth. And you see this, it's prevalent everywhere. Now, it's all over social media. It's, I mean, it's, it's in your mainstream education curriculum. It's everywhere. The Lincoln myth is everywhere, whether it's pro, um, pro-conservative or pro-progressive, really isn't much of a difference anymore. It's all there. You see, this is what I've talked about with the 1619 Project and the Claremont Institute. They're two sides of the same coin. They're promoting the same thing. It's just they don't really realize it. They don't realize they're promoting the same thing. If you believe in the Lincoln myth, you're going to believe in the Claremont Institute. If you believe in the Lincoln myth, you're going to believe in the 1619 Project. You have to. This is what Nicole Hannah-Jones said. Her, her dad was flying a flag, U.S. flag. And she couldn't figure this out. And he said, well, it's because the United States, the Lincoln myth. And she said, well, if that's the case, then we fall, we've fallen far short of that. Our goal, we've never really achieved that. In fact, it's been the exact opposite. For all these generations, we should be achieving the Lincoln myth, but we're not. If you're the Claremont people, you'll say, well, wait a second. We've achieved the Lincoln myth, uh, and we should stop. We can't go any further. Nicole Hannah-Jones would say, and all the leftists would say, no, 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 you can't tell us when to stop. It only stops when we tear down every Confederate monument, when we tear down Abraham Lincoln, when we tear down the Founding Fathers, when we tear down the Constitution, when we tear down the entire structure because it's all systemically bad. It has to go away. It can only, we have to undo all of it. All of it. Now, they'll argue that so long as it doesn't affect their jobs or their livelihood. They'll do it. 
They're fine with the system as long as they're in the system. Um, and even when they speak against the system, they're still fine with the system. But at the end of the day, this is what they want. They want to tear everything down because it's all systemically rotten. It's rotten from the beginning. It never achieved that proposition nation. And this is where the, well, we did have this proposition. But Nicole Hannah-Jones would agree to an extent. But it was just words. They didn't do any of it. See, the Claremont people would say they actually acted on those words. They did these things. There's a difference. It's the same thing. They believe in the same myth. And when you look at this piece in Law and Liberty by Tyler McQueen, McQueen, that's, it's, the title is When Legend Becomes Fact. And he's talking about the proposition nation. So let me read this piece. Again, it goes back with everything I've talked about on this podcast over and over again. But he says, Americans' love for their country is at an all-time low. A recent Gallup poll revealed that only 38% of adults say they're extremely proud to be an American. We all know that ongoing debates over education, immigration, election security, and the coronavirus pandemic have exacerbated the lack of pride and faith in our political institutions. But they are not the only reasons why love for our country is at an all-time low. The challenge today is the idea that an ugly founding cannot produce citizens who love their country, argues George Lloyd of Pepperdine University. And he is right. So let's go back and let me read that again. The challenge today is the idea that, the, that an ugly founding cannot produce citizens who love their country. Well, this is where, again, and he's going to talk about Zins, a people's history of the United States and the 1619 Project, creates an ugly history of the past. What they're working from is that we had this glorious prospect and they never met it. So the ugly history falls short of the proposition nation. That is at the heart of everything. We are. We could have been great, but look at us. The Claremont people would say, yeah, we could have been great, and we are. What if the proposition nation was never true at all? What if that was, it's, it's all operating from ideology, not tradition. You're operating from a position of ideology in both cases. And this is what I talked about with Lafayette Lee, and then I had the rejoinder by Glenn Elmers, and I've talked about this with Michael Anton and all the people that are on that side. They're playing in the left. Once you start with a position of ideology, you can only go really in one direction because you can't say we're going to go with this far in the ideology and then stop because the left can take it even further, particularly when it's something that's as lofty as the proposition nation. If we live in the proposition nation, then I will say this, the left is correct, largely correct. Action is, is louder than words. And if you look at the history of the United States, I mean, people didn't live up to the proposition nation. For most of them, but that, if they really believed it, they didn't live up to it. We know in the North they didn't. We know in the South they didn't. They didn't live up to it at all. So what I would say is, we didn't really have the proposition nation to begin with. And these are just things that people did in the 18th century, in the 17th century, in the 19th century. It wasn't odd or unusual for people to act this way. What you're basically doing is indicting people from the present. This is The real problem here is presentism. <laughs> That's the real issue. Uh, there we live in our timeline. We live in our current time. And who's to say 100 years from now, they're not going to look back at us and say, these people were absolutely lunatics. I think they will in a lot of cases. These people were lunatics. What are they doing? 
Does that make us wrong today? We would say, no, we're not wrong. We're not wrong. This is what I've said before, that if you were to poll students, and I talked about this with Phil Lee and others who have pointed this out, if you were to poll students today, how many of you in this class would be an abolitionist? Everyone would raise their hand. But I guarantee you, if they were, if they were honest, if you, if you put them in 1850, and you put it in, in that way, that being an abolitionist was actually the hard thing to be, that it was the, not the easy thing to be, or if you would really do that, they would, maybe one would raise their hand, maybe, because they probably would have been beaten up and run out of town if they were in the North. This is the thing. We don't really live in, in, uh, it, with a historical understanding. We live in slogans, platitudes, and ideologies, and that creates real problems. So uh, Matt Queen says, Our declining political faith arises from how we understand our part in the larger American narrative. Educational efforts like A People's History of the United States and many aspects of the 1619 Project have had costly effects on the civic mind. Increasingly, Americans view our founding as ugly. We project that ugliness onto all aspects of our history. So they only view it as ugly because of ideology. It's not ugly. It just was what it was. And it was based on tradition. The Magna Carta, the English Bill of Rights. It wasn't ugly. People lived the way they did because that's the time in which they lived. They weren't 21st century Americans, and that's what we have to understand. You, you wouldn't pass any form of condemnation on them if you judged them by 18th century standards. I mean, but we don't. We judge them by 21st century standards because of presentism and ideology. Now, as I talked about in the show, uh, you know, Eric Foner thinks that's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to judge, you know, have presentist historians. But is it really? The job of a historian is to understand. What is needed now is a reminder that while our founding is not perfect, it is far from ugly. I agree with that statement. I mean, what would perfect be anyways? I mean, this is coming from an ideological utopianism. The founding is just what it is. It's not ugly. It's not beautiful. It just is what it is. It was the founding period, and people lived in the 18th century. And in the 18th century, across the world, people had slaves. And in the 18th century, people were racist. They, I mean, they weren't 21st century Americans. So what? That's the, so what should be the response. So what? The founders are racist. So what? The founders are slave owners. So what? They're the 18th century. What are we supposed to do about that now? And did they not say great things? Did they not do great things? Of course they did. Those things are irrelevant. You're just trying to find a reason not to pay attention to them because of ideology and political motivation. That's the key to it all. The Marxists have always done this. The cultural Marxists, the political Marxists, the economic Marxists, they want to tear down everything they can so they can rebuild under their utopian perfection. And so when you say things like the founders weren't perfect, Nobody suggested they should be. That's a completely preposterous and stupid statement. So we need a reminder of that. For this task, McQueen says, there is no better historical figure to turn to than our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, and no better speech to turn to than the Gettysburg Address given 159 years ago this Saturday. So right, he's, he's writing this um, right about the time of uh, the, uh, the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address. 
Now, I've talked about the Gettysburg Address in a video I did for the Abbeville Institute. I've talked about it on this show. I've got a class, Declaration of Independence, where I go into the Gettysburg Address. It's a real distortion of the founding. I mean, it is the key to understanding the proposition nation myth. But Lincoln was simply regurgitating what other Republicans have said. I've talked about this in the Radical Republicans class at McClanahan Academy. Lots of stuff out there to go get some content where I go into more detail on this. I give you free content all year. You should support it by paying for some classes here and there. The power of Gettysburg resides in the story that Lincoln tells. Lincoln was known by political friends and adversaries alike to be a skilled humorist and thoughtful storyteller. Well, thoughtful, I don't know. Humorist, yes. In fact, they didn't take him seriously. I mean, Lincoln was a goofball that nobody took seriously. It's amazing that this dunderhead, this dope, became president. Absolutely amazing. Gettysburg's story is of a nation dedicated to good principles. How does fail to live up to them? And the terrible price that it must pay to rededicate itself to those principles once again. It's a story. It's a nice story, but based on nothing. I mean, Lincoln is inventing history the entire time. This is what the Republican Party was always doing. They were inventing history. Again, if Massachusetts was as committed to the proposition nation as Charles Sumner or Abraham Lincoln made it out to be, why is it? That when John Adams drafted the first constitution for Massachusetts, it was a pro-slavery document. Now, it wasn't rejected because of that. It was rejected for other reasons. The second constitution doesn't prohibit slavery. A court did that. And if Massachusetts was so dedicated to this proposition, well, why was it so hard on black residents for years? And then why was Massachusetts one of the last places in the United States to desegregate its school system? Why? If it was so dedicated to this. But you see, it wasn't. It's a story that's a fairy tale, as I've said over and over again. This is a fairy tale of America. It's a myth. An actual myth based on nothing real. In Gettysburg, a small, unremarkable crossroads town in the heart of Pennsylvania, Lincoln reminded a war-torn nation that a people's union can endure and become more perfect. A people's union. It's not a people's union. We've got a federal republic. This is where people, I mean, this is a, a, Law and Liberty is kind of a libertarian website, conservative at times, libertarian, but they also run left libertarian stuff. This is a joke. This piece is an absolute joke. It doesn't get the terminology right. It doesn't get anything right. It's no wonder why the 272-word speech has been etched into memorials recited by presidents and prime ministers alike and memorized by school children for generations. Well, it's... It is a wonder to me because it meant nothing. In fact, Lincoln himself called it, or a newspaper called it a dishwatery utterance. Lincoln didn't think it was remarkable at all. It is remarkable that people have to do this because it meant nothing. It was a, it was a word salad nothing burger in 1863. However, the story Lincoln tells of the promise, pitfalls, and prospects of renewal for democratic government is in no way unique. It's one that he told many times before. Gettysburg is the ideal counter to the Howard Zins and Nicole Hannah Joneses of the world because it is the most concise defense of the good but imperfect founding. Now again, I think they get Zinn and he think it's Zinn and Nicole Hannah Jones wrong. They believe in the proposition nation, but America never lived up to it. It's the same thing Lincoln's saying. That somehow these people are, are arguing with themselves over the same. Uh, well, you believe in the uh, we had a, we had an imperfect founding, yeah. 
Well, I believe we had an imperfect founding. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, this is what they're doing with each other. It's it's a circular argument. It doesn't you're not you don't have two sides. You have the same coin. It's the same coin. You don't have you have one team playing the the proposition nation myth, just arguing, you know, how they're going to play the rules, and the other team is like, well, you know, we never had that. It's two sides of the same coin. Lincoln's larger collection of speeches, letters, and fragments reveals how deep his respect for the founding generation went. On one such instance, in his 1842 Temperance Address, delivered to the Washingtonian Society in Springfield, consider these excerpts from the conclusion of the speech. Now, I've also got my class at McClanahan Academy reading Abraham Lincoln, um, where I go through a lot of Lincoln's speeches. There, I mean, look, Lincoln did have a... Uh, respect to the founding generation. In fact, he believed it should be a civic religion. This is his this is his Lyceum address. He believed it should be a civic religion. But his understanding of the founding was really distorted. And so consider these these this excerpt. I'm going to read it. Of our political revolution of 76, we're all justly proud. It has given us a degree of political freedom far exceeding that of any other nation of the earth. In it, the world has found a solution of the long-mooted problem as to the capability of man to govern himself. And it was the germ which has vegetated and still is to grow and expand into the universal liberty of mankind. What does it mean? Okay, what does it even mean? But here's the thing. Man could govern themselves before that. The British system allowed man to govern himself, at least theoretically. You had elections in Great Britain... You had elections in the colonies. You had colonial legislatures. This wasn't, there was no creation of this here. And there was no, uh, no push for the universal liberty of mankind. That's French revolutionary nonsense. Not American war for independence. But with all these glorious results, past, present, and to come, it had its evils too. It breathed forth famine, swam in blood, and rode in fire, and long, long after, the orphan's cry and the widow's wail continued to break the sad silence that ensued. And when the victory shall be complete, when there shall be neither a slave nor a drunkard on the earth, how nobly distinguished that people who shall have planted and nurtured to maturity both the political and moral freedom of their species. Now, there is, look at what he says there. That's the 1619 Project. We haven't finished. This is Eric Foner. We have we have an unfinished revolution. We agree. Lincoln was right. We have we had slaves and drunkards. We had all these things we got to reform and all the stuff we got to do. We don't do any of that. In fact, we work against that stuff. Lincoln was right. Let's go with Lincoln and continue the revolution forward, comrades. You see, but to McQueen, it means something else. To fully appreciate Gettysburg poetic vindication of an imperfect founding, it is important to understand that this oft-forgotten passage from the Temperance Address is a blueprint of sorts for the theme, structure, and imagery immortalized in the 1863 Address. Between these two speeches, Lincoln mythologized account of the founding generation produces an affection for our, of our institutions and history that America has surrendered. So in other words, Lincoln making up something, we created this myth of America, which... I talked about in the bonus thing last week in Thanksgiving. This is the Puritan myth of America. That's <laughs> what it is. It's all, it all comes back to that. The city upon a hill. 
Now, the Puritans uh, were looking at different things, but certainly this is the city upon a hill stuff. Slave or a drunkard? Drunkards, we got to eliminate drunkards and slavery. It's all reform. It's reform. This is what Hannah Jones is saying. We've never gone far enough with our reforms. It's what Howard Zinn is saying. These people are just ridiculous to think that somehow this is a counterweight to Zinn and Nicole Hannah-Jones. It's not. Both the Tempest Address passage and Gettysburg proceed in a linear fashion. Each begins with the Declaration's promise of the political revolution of 76, as Lincoln refers to it in the Temperance. In this revolution, Lincoln correctly asserts that the founding generation dedicated the nation to the proposition that all men are created equal and proved that mankind, mankind could, in fact, govern itself. But they didn't. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. The most important part of the Declaration is the last paragraph. Again, if you take my Declaration class, I get into that. I do the Gettysburg Address and 26 speeches that changed America. Uh, I do the Gettysburg Address in the Reading Abraham Lincoln course. I talk about Gettysburg a lot. It really is a pivot point in America, and you have to understand it for what it was, a complete 272-word load of garbage because it wasn't based on any historical reality. Perhaps unwittingly, Lincoln crafted his American mythology as a democratic counterpart to the classical mythology of the Greco-Roman world. Perhaps unwittingly. Of course, it would be unwittingly because Lincoln was a, nim- as a dimwit. He wouldn't know anything. But you're going to read into that. Oh, yes, yes, this is the classical world that we're thinking about here. Um, and uh, this is there's a direct line from the uh, mythology of the Greco-Roman world to Abraham Lincoln. Because this relies upon emphasizing how high mankind had risen from his primal state. Consider how Lincoln only alluded to the time before America when speaking about the great miseries the political revolution alleviated in temperance, a passing acknowledgement before celebrating the triumphs of secure. No such connection is made in Gettysburg. The reasons for Lincoln beginning with the moral and political triumph of the Declaration are twofold. First, it establishes the noble end of American government. In other words, it's reform. Well, where would, the, where would the 1619 Project disagree with this? They wouldn't. Where would Eric Foner disagree with this? Where would Howard Zinn disagree with this? They wouldn't agree with it at all. The noble end of American government is reform. It's to alleviate the misery of mankind through government action. It's to level society. It's to make everyone equal. Equity. You see, this is the noble end. Second, it sets up the nation's history for the inevitable tragedy that will never perfectly reach that end. So, where, again, is that different from what Nicole Hannah-Jones is saying? We've, we have this noble idea, but we never get to it. In fact, she would say we never even started. <laughs> we've never really believed it. Now, I would agree with her, because it wasn't true to begin with. This undergirds Lincoln's transition to the present moment and the pitfalls of creating a liberal democracy under such principles. In his examination of the present, Lincoln's narrative offers a striking blow to those who exalt the founders at the expense of their human imperfections and moral failures. While granting more political freedom than any other nation on earth at the time, America also swam in blood and rode in fire and found itself engaged in a great civil war. The injustices Lincoln alludes to are real and deeply concerning to him and others in 1842 and 1863. Not only is chattel slavery expanding in 1842, but recorded cases of lynchings increased, abolitionist newspapers were destroyed, and their editors assaulted. So, um, this is the exact thing that Nicole Hannah-Jones and Howard Zinn would say. Again, where is the difference in this conservative 
supposedly conservative piece. And, I mean, the Claremonters would all agree with this too. Where is the difference? There isn't. Abolitionists were seen as nasty reformers, violent nasty reformers, who had to be run out of town. Because they were causing all kinds of problems. They were the, you know, the Antifa of the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. That's what they were. And again, this is why I said most students would not have been on board with that stuff. 1863 saw the nation at the height of a war that threatened to eliminate the possibility of liberal democracy and protecting human equality. How would it do that? How would it eliminate uh, liberal democracy? You already had it in the North. You actually had an election during the 18 during the war. If it was going to eliminate liberal democracy, if the South was that much of a threat, then you wouldn't have had an election in the North or in the South, which, by the way, they had elections in the South, too. Yeah. So, so much for getting rid of democracy. And human equality? What human equality in the North? There's a great website, slavenorth.com. You should go out and look at it. Slave North documents all the instances in the North of this uh, their action against human equality, um, even during the war. With over 170,000 men fighting at the Battle of Gettysburg alone. An estimated 47,000 died, making it the costliest battle in the United States history and among the bloodiest witnessed by the modern world. Calling to mind the great unrest in the American mind and spirit during the 19th century, Lincoln reminded his fellow citizens that there is still something in America worth loving. Our institutions, though human and full of error, were cons are constructed with the tools to be amended by the will of the people. Rallying behind the promise of the founding and accepting the failings of the nation, Lincoln knew that Americans have the opportunity to make the nation more perfect and therefore more worthy of our love. Well, I mean, this again is what what the 1619 Project would say. This sets the stage of the future that Lincoln envisions and the prospect for America's renewal. In uncharacteristically theatrical language, Lincoln speaks in the temperance passage of a time when the universal liberty of mankind would be secured once America confronted and overcame the evils of intemperance and slavery. How nobly distinguished that people who shall have planted and nurtured to maturity both the political and moral freedom of their species... We famously see this again in Gettysburg when Lincoln declares that should the Union emerge triumphant in war and slavery be abolished, America would prove that government of the people, by the people, for the people should not perish from the earth. Well, it did as soon as he invaded the South because he invalidated the action of the people of the South. For whatever you think about the Confederate cause, whatever that is, it was a democratically initiated cause. You had democratically elected conventions and they're the ones that seceded from the Union and crushing majorities. So where is democracy failing? Well, in Lincoln's action. In both instances, Lincoln's optimistic outlook from the future is rooted in both recognition of the good and acceptance of the evil that the founding could not eradicate. The goal of this two-decade rhetorical project was not to double down on the evils that the early republic perpetuated, nor was it to suggest that the nation's past is simply black and white like many historians claim today. Lincoln's mythology was designed to vindicate the social order of the founding generation, built upon principles of equality and the virtue of representative government, and doing so reignites hope and the possibilities of our political experiment. But again, as I pointed out, 
He's setting the stage. The proposition nation sets the stage for perpetual revolution to get to this point that we can never reach. Unlike most myths from antiquity where the legend becomes fact, Lincoln's mythology is built on and on and sustained by the plain reading of the founding generation and acute understanding of their relationship to the rest of American history. It's a type of thought and prose that the Zins and Hannah Joneses of the world reject because it does not paint history as black and white, oppressor and oppressed. So in that way, I mean, uh, he's saying, well, you have these you have these people saying we have these bad guys, all through bad guys, and we can only have these guys are good. Well, Lincoln actually um, would kind of do that by action. He waged a war against an entire people in the South, and by default, hundreds of thousands of people were killed. I mean, is that not good and evil? Black and white, oppressor and oppressed? Of course he's doing that. Lincoln does it through the whole time. And while many Americans today reject the wisdom of the past, Lincoln embraced the founding without discounting the evils it could not eradicate. And recognizing the good along with the bad, Lincoln's democratic mythology gives us hope that our political circumstances can be overcome in the 21st century. It reminds us that our founding is not ugly and therefore permits us to love our country again. Well, see, if you're not an ideologue, you can love the founding, even if it is quote-unquote ugly, which I take the founding for what it was. It just is. It was a continuation of the Anglo-American tradition of independence, of resistance to central authority, unconstitutional central authority. That's all it was. Nothing else, because that's really what it was at its core. Nothing more, nothing less. And I can love that, and I can find fault in people that I don't agree with now, and all generations of people, and say, well, you know, I mean, it's, we shouldn't do that. I mean, do we have to pass judgment on Aristotle? How about Alexander the Great or anybody else? Do we have to pass judgment on Of course we don't. In his 1862 annual message to Congress, Lincoln declared, we shall nobly save or, or meanly lose the last best hope on earth. While most certainly true for Lincoln and his contemporaries, it is no less true for us today. The promise of the founding is still ours to save and ours to lose. If we want to avoid losing it once more, we must learn again to love what our country can be. To help us, there is no better figure to turn to than Mr. Lincoln. Again, I don't think that Nicole Hannah-Jones or Howard Zinn or Eric Foner or any of the other leftist losers out there would disagree with this statement. They love Abraham Lincoln. What they don't love is all the people that supposedly didn't work with Abraham, including the founding generation who didn't really do what Lincoln said they needed to do, right? So they love Lincoln. Got to continue the revolution. This is the important part of all this and why we need to understand it's highly problematic for a real understanding of American history. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week of the Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you... Oh, by the way, I'll say this before I say go. If you want me five times a week, get that Abbeville Institute podcast on Fridays or Saturdays when it comes out. It's five times a week. But I'll see you next week on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>